Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Aldo Yaro on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great. Great to have you here. Thank you. So you're based in San Francisco, but taking a stop out to visit, so it's great that you could catch some time. I really appreciate it. So let's take it back a little bit. You were at Oxford University, Mm -hmm. and what happened uh, in terms of the food scene there? (laughs) You mean the prison-like food that they were serving in the colleges? Uh, I wouldn't be anywhere close to somebody who could claim a culinary upbringing. My mother knew how to make, I think, about five dishes four of which contained brown rice and tofu, a uh, child of a hippie, if you couldn't tell from the name. And uh, I found myself in Oxford basically unable to eat the food that they were serving to me. And I, so I, I had access to a kitchen. I started cooking for myself. And, and when I say cooking for myself, I mean, you know, like scrambled eggs and, and spaghetti and things like that. And figured, Scrambled eggs for dinner. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> like, I mean, that's yeah, how. The college snack. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, top ramen occasionally. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, it is one of the finest ramen brands you can buy. It's prepackaged for you in cellophane. So of those options. What's uh, not to love. <laughs> uh, and so I thought, well, here I am. I'm this young intellectual in Europe. Shouldn't I be drinking wine with my dinner that I've made for myself? Um, so I would go down to the local bottle shop and, you know, scan the lowest shelves that I could afford. And I was too intimidated to talk with anyone. So I would just buy by the label. So that's how I ended up bringing home, like, Mateus and, you know, uh, fiasco-wrapped Chianti bottles and things like that, just trying them all out. And I guess calling it an awakening would be sort of giving it too much credit, but it was really interesting. They all tasted different, and some of them went better with my crappy spaghetti than others. And and so I just became really interested in wine and what it was all about. I, I had never had it growing up. It wasn't something that was part of my family's tradition at all. And uh, so then when I came back to the States after my couple terms at Oxford, I graduated school and got a job and essentially just started spending my pocket money on food and wine and and I have a slightly anal retentive personality, if you want to call it that. And so I take notes about things that I eat and drink. And that was sort of the, the beginning of the journey. You were moving more into like the tech and design mm-hmm. elements in terms of your professional life. Yeah, I, I helped start a web design company right out of college. It was sort of the heyday of, you know, the, the web was growing up in 95, 96. And, um, you know, I had a degree in photography and a degree in documentary film production, eminently practical, both of them. Big money uh, in that. Oh, yeah. Um, so I basically had the choice of going off and getting an MFA and sort of continuing the academic route or, you know, actually making some money. So I, I decided to take a break and 
the breaks lasted, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> you were in the San Francisco Bay Area at, mm-hmm. at the start of the big push into the web in terms of consumer awareness on a regular everyday level, like yes. as opposed to universities and military facilities using it. Now regular people were checking out the yeah, internet. Yeah, it was, you know, NCSA Mosaic had just come out. Netscape was just being launched. People were discovering, oh, there is this thing called the web. Uh, you know, people had home pages. That was what got me into it was somebody showed me. They're like, hey, check this out. It's somebody's home page. And I said, wow, I need me one of them. And so I taught myself HTML, and that was just sort of the beginning of my professional career. It was total happenstance. As that kind of went along, you were like, hey, uh, I, I don't know if it's a lot of wine websites. Yeah, I mean, this was much, much later on. So 2004, and uh, I had, uh, you know, I had been taking notes on what I ate and drank for a good solid 10 years at least. And um, like in long form. Like yeah, hand, like filling hand. up moleskin notebooks, you know, with my notes on like, oh, you know, I went to this restaurant, and this was really good, and oh, you know, I had, you know, Jerusalem artichokes for the first time, or whatever, you know, just, you know, stupid stuff. I probably had fantasies of being a restaurant critic, or, you know, something like that, but, um, uh, but uh, yeah, I had become the wine guy among all my friends, you know, the one that everybody hands the wine list to and everything like that, and uh, um I decided I was tired of filling up these notebooks that I never looked at and frankly probably couldn't read either because my handwriting is lousy and thought, well, maybe there's a way to get this information online and and do that. And blogs were just getting started. And so I started you know, t- tossing around the idea of creating a wine blog. You know, so those moleskin books are expensive. So you mm-hmm. probably save like 50 bucks a year. You're like, wow, this is... Well, the irony is as soon as I really started the blog and it got going, I was taking way more notes than I ever did before because it was all material for this for this blog, and I would end up having to transcribe them and stuff like that. So, yeah, I continue to fill up Moleskine notebooks. There's no no shortage of those on my shelves anymore. I look back at the 2004 entries for your blog. And oh, no. <laughs> quite, quite, quite a few of them. I mean, it's and they're often involving either restaurants or wines you purchased at retail. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm. it's very embarrassing to actually look back at those because I didn't know anything when I was first starting. Um, but uh, yeah, I I very quickly became prolific. I, I started writing almost every day. It was just a creative outlet for me, something I really enjoyed doing. And uh, yeah, it was fun. I was single too at the time. Or I j- Actually, that's not true. I just met my the woman who would be my wife. But um, yeah, it was, it was just a lot of fun. You seem like the sort of guy who puts words on page to kind of think through his own process that way. Like it's almost a discussion you're having with yourself out loud into type. I I am a very I don't know what the op, what the opposite of oral is, you know, not hearing but writing um uh kind of person. Like when I was in school, I my notes were very extensive because that's the way sort of I remember and retain and and things like that. So writing's definitely always been part of my mental process. And so it's not surprising maybe that that comes across. Originally, it started out more as a professional thing or was it more just kind of a personal thing? It was totally a personal project. It was the replacement for the notebooks, right? And also someplace that I could send my friends and st- sort of stop answering the same damn question over and over again. Oh, I get they, it. You know, so like stop asking me which restaurants I like in, right, in that yeah. neighborhood. Yeah. Stop asking what the best Merlot under $20 is that you can buy in the city of San Francisco. Here's an article. Go read it. You know, go to the blog. So Let that was the idea. for you to. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How many other blogs were there at that time? I mean, were there a lot around or, or so bef- for wine? Before I started, I Googled the phrase wine blog and 
uh, I looked through literally every page of the Google search results, which it was possible to do at that time. Um, so, you know, there must have been several hundred sites that had the two words wine and blog together on the same page. I could only find one website that was a self-declared wine blog. And that was one that had been started, I don't know, four or five months earlier in August of 2003 and was abandoned, clearly. Like, you know, somebody had made four or five posts on it and then it was never updated again. And just... Out of curiosity, I would go back periodically over the following year or two and check back, and it was never updated again. So, and then, you know, in in retrospect, you know, I've discovered the Joe Dresner's blog and Jamie Good's blog, um, which I think, in fact, predated mine, but um, for whatever reason, I couldn't find them when I was doing that initial search. So it felt like very much a greenfield to me when I started. Did it sort of take off, or I mean, how did the word get out about what you were doing? When I first started, I checked the stats, you know, a few weeks in and saw that my 23 friends or whatever had come to visit. I was like, great, it's working. That Merlot <laughs> uh, thing there happened. You go. Yeah. Um, and so then I basically just ignored it for months. Then I went back a few months later, and there were thousands of people visiting the website. And I, I was definitely surprised, um, you know, sort of tangential to that. I make my living designing websites, and so I know how to design a website that had good SEO uh, and that Google paid a lot of attention to. So I, you know, my website. Sort what's of, SEO? Just for oh, sorry, time. search engine optimization, right? So there's a way that you organize the code of your website so that Google can read it, and also so that Google knows what it's about. And there are they're not so much tricks as conventions that you can follow to make it very clear to Google what your site is about and to associate your site with certain keywords, um, and so. I did that when I designed the website. And so if anybody types wine blog into Google, my blog has been for the last 10 years and will always be one of the top few results just because of sort of how I've done it and how long I've done that. So, so I got a lot of organic traffic, it's called, through Google, um, way more than I thought at the beginning. But apparently sort of I had started the blog at a time when people were interested in this idea of a wine blog. And so they all ended up at me. And it's been 10 years, or almost 10 years. In January, it'll be 10 years, yeah. And you pretty much posted regularly. I mean, how many posts do you do a week, say? Uh, it's, it used to be seven days a week, six or seven days a week. And then I got married, and it dropped to six days a week. And then I had a kid, and it dropped to four or five. So, yeah, I mean, I I'm, I get a little depressed if I don't post at least three or four times a week. And I really shoot for, for five if I can. And do you think that's part of the success? Like, okay, we're going to give people a reason to come back. Like, here's new content. Yeah, there's a discipline about it, and it's definitely part of the success. Uh, you know, the most prolific and um, popular blogs go hand in hand, really. the the All the best blogs post multiple times a day, right? The ones that are really super popular and get millions and gazillions of people visiting. Um, and so, yeah, definitely part of my continued traffic, part of my relevance, just, you know, both electronically in terms of what Google and other search engines pay attention to, but then also just in terms of being top of mind comes from, yeah, writing a lot, writing regularly. It's not a lot of pictures. I mean, now you have uh, picture entries of photographer that you work with that, mm -hmm. that does post, but even those are, they lead in with text, right? Mm -hmm. It's pretty text heavy. Yep. And we always hear like, hey, people want to go to video or hey, you know, people want uh, you know, a visual stimulation, but it seems like uh, you've managed to get several thousand hits and followers and readers um, based on what's pretty much um, a personal 
approach to I like this, I didn't like this. This is what happened. This is why. In text, you you know, you come from a tech background. What makes sense about that to you when you hear people say like, oh, everything's got to be short and everything's got to be pictures? Well, so I'm making a distinct effort to include more photographs on my on my website. So, um, you know, over the last year or two, uh, I've been much more diligent about when I travel, taking photographs. Um, and uh, it's sort of surprising to me that I haven't done that all along, but for whatever reason, uh, I, I didn't. Um, and video, you know, frankly, is a large missed opportunity for me. Um, as Gary Vaynerchuk has proven, there was a very large appetite for, for wine video. Um, and so the problem is I have this film degree and my standards for what makes for a good video are quite high. And I know what it would take for me to meet those standards, which is a lot of time and energy that I don't have. I mean, I have a 60 hour a week day job that I have to fit this wine writing in between that and my family. And so I just didn't feel like I could do it justice. So I've stayed away from the video, um, but I'm definitely trying to make the work that I do more visual. And, you know, I did have this photography degree. And so, you know, I've all, I'm interested in that. And that's resulted in this essence of wine collaboration that I think you were just talking about with this, with this food photographer. Um, but yeah, words are, for me, it is, it's, it's a place to write first and foremost. And that's, that's what I do. And then as for short versus long, I don't know. I battle against the sort of the sound biteization of, of the world a little bit. I mean, I have a Twitter account and that's where I do the Twitter stuff. And there are definitely things I put on Twitter that are just like, you know, 140 characters. And that's all it really takes to convey a particular idea or a link to something. Uh, and my stuff tends to be a little bit longer form um, because for me, it's really about stories and telling stories. And sure, you can tell a very, very, very short story, but there's a lot of richness to the world of wine and the people who populate it and the wines that we drink. And I really get enjoyment out of con conveying that. And I enjoy reading that when I do read. And so, um, you know, it, it, people ask me, well, sort of, how do you, you know, how do you decide what to write? And it's still true, as true as it was when I first started the blog, that I write the kind of stuff that I want to read when it comes to, to the wine world. And it often seems uh, to be in the first person. Like, I went and did this, and this is what happened, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm sharing that with you. Yeah. Uh, it's always been my voice. And um, sometimes it makes more sense, given the topic, for it to be clearly very personal. Um, uh, and sometimes I'm... I'm a clear voice in the picture, but I'm not actually in the, you know, the events that are, that are happening. But, um, yeah, I mean, if people want sort of dry wine reportage, there are plenty of places to do that. I think part of the, or to read that. And part of the reason that people come to me is cause, cause it's me. So when you started, there weren't many wine blogs, as you said, there was almost nothing. Were there blogs or websites in other medium that, you know, in, in terms of other subject matter that really stood out for you as inspirations? Were there things you said, oh, that's, that's interesting how he does it? No, it was really the, it was really the classic books, you know, the Kermit Lynch's On the Wine Route and, and um, you know, uh, compilations of Gerald Asher's essays and things like that, that really were the wine writing that I was like, oh yeah, like this is great. Like, why isn't there more of this in the world? And so, 
those were more of an inspiration, I'd say, than any other particular website. Um, you know, I was a salon.com, early salon.com subscriber. And, um, you know, there were a few blogs out there that, that, um, that I followed that were really interesting. Three Quarks Daily is one that I can remember I read for a long time. Um, but no, I think most of my inspiration just came from my, my experiences and the things that I thought were worth telling in terms of stories and then classics like like I mentioned that you know books who really had a strong voice had a spirit to them and really had a fabric and a feel to them that was that was beautiful and it seems like there's a desire to be thorough yeah I I'm probably an overly thorough person (laughs) well I mean you know what most people do like here's blogs I like and it's like you know 20 30 blogs but when you do a blog you like you like blogs in Japanese wine blogs in Russian wine blogs in Slovak wine <laughs> blog, you know you know well it's funny I you know one of the strategies for getting yourself noticed by Google is interlinking yourself with other sites and in particular having other sites linked to you and so that was an early part of my strategy to get visibility in Google and so as a result you know, sort of the ethics of the web are if you ask somebody to make a link to your website, you better damn well have a link to theirs to start with. So I started creating this list of wine blogs for that reason. It used to be called a blog roll, right? Or probably still is. Um, and that that just grew. And because I was sort of the quote unquote, the, you know, the one of the pioneers of wine blogging or whatever, I... Everybody, when they started their blog, of course, they went and typed in wine blogs and they found mine. And so if they were following that same sort of strategy, they'd say, hey, Alder, can you link to me? Blah, blah, blah. And so I just started, you know, and, and at the time it was a service, right? You know, anybody who wanted to find the wine blogs on the internet, when there were two dozen or three dozen of them, it was nice to have that list, the authoritative list. And so I've tried to maintain that as much as possible over the years. There came a point at which Google really penalized me for having that. And like all my traffic from Google went away because, you know, essentially I had qualified as a link farm, which is a way of gaming the search engine system. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out, several months to figure out like why all of a sudden nobody was coming to my website anymore. Um, and then I realized it was that list. And so then I had to move it to sort of its own special place and code it in a way that Google wouldn't pay any attention to it. Um, but I like to maintain that. Just it's, a uh, you know, and, and now some other people have taken it over and are really, uh, you know, have built a list based on that and are really maintaining it. And so there's a more authoritative list out there now uh, published by the folks at Vintank. But um, uh, yeah, it was an important thing for me to partially build the community of wine blogs at the beginning to, to create that list. And and yeah, I was thorough about it. I tried to sort of say, all right, well, if I'm going to create a list of wine blogs, then let's have it be all of them. Are there things that have surprised you over the course of the 10 years, either for yourself and your own writing or your own blog or what happened, or for just the community of wine blogs? Were, were there things you're like, well, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting that? I think it surprised me just how wine blogging has taken off. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of wine blogs around the world. And for me and for a number of other people, it's turned a hobby into a profession. Um, you know, there are several people who are now, they're not blogging full time and making a living at it, but they now have a career that's about wine writing, wine speaking, wine consulting and stuff like that, all based on the fact that just like me, one day they decided to start writing about wine, you know, regardless of whether anybody cared what they had to say. Um, so that's really amazing. I mean, uh, and while I don't want to overstate the impact of wine blogs, um, we've seen a dramatic shift in the 
critical establishment over the last 10 years in the wine world. We've gone from a hegemony of Parker and the Spectator and the Enthusiast um, and Wine and Spirits sort of being the four outlets in the United States with maybe one or two standalone critics like Eric Asimov and folks like that that have really, that were really the voice of wine criticism and evaluation in this country to, you know, what for lack of a better word is the seller tracker age where, you know, there are thousands of opinions about the most popular wines and people like me all over the States and all over the world that are accepted as critical authorities on wine in general or specific aspects of the wine world. And that's phenomenal, right? It's this incredible democratization of wine and wine appreciation that is, uh, you know, when I really sit down and think about it, 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 astounding. And it does seem like one of the aspects of the wine world that you're often involved with is California wine. I live in California. It's the majority of the samples that I get, the relationships with the vintners that I have that are closest. So yeah, I'm, I'm very much embedded in that scene. As much as I try, both because of my own personal interest and also just to avoid you know, being the California wine guy to, to, to branch out and visit places around the world and write about, write about wines that aren't specifically California or American in general. One of the benefits of California wine for the audience is that uh, it's it's somewhat more understandable for people who are just breaking into wine, I think, than certain you know Corsican reds, where you're like, how do I pronounce this grape variety? You know, there's it's there's a grape variety on the label; they kind of understand what it is. There's variations on a, a few grape varieties as opposed to a plethora of thousands and thousands. Does that help in terms of breaking in a new audience that might be searching for wine information for free online? That's an interesting question. I I agree with your assessment of California and American wine in general being accessible because of the, you know, the focus on variety and a certain amount of predictability that exists with sort of okay, if I like Pinot Noir and I had this Pinot Noir from Santa Barbara, then, you know, when I get one from the Sonoma Coast, it's probably going to be about the same and and I think there's great value in that to the wine consumer. Um uh Certainly, the majority of my audience is from the United States, and within the United States, a good chunk of that is from California, and the fact that I write about California wine is certainly appealing to a lot of those people. I don't know that I could say with any certainty that that is that skews towards the newer part of my audience and people who are just trying to learn about wine, but I do think... I certainly agree with the folks you know who go out there and do those surveys and things like that about you know, this younger wine generation, everybody raves about the millennials and the impact that they're going to have on the wine industry. And I think those folks are very online focused, you know, they're digital natives, they grew up, you know, surfing the web uh, as soon as they could type. And uh, they look online for wine information, like they look online for everything. And, uh, you know, when you search, you know, let's say, you know, you're newly 22 and you went and had a bottle of wine in a restaurant that you really liked and you go online, you search, you know, you type the name of that wine in and followed by the word review, the sites that come up are blog sites, not the Wine Spectator, not the Wine Advocate or anything like that. And so... Because those are behind paywalls. Right. And so, uh, yeah, so having reviews of California wines certainly gives me access to that audience and vice versa. What about that time commitment? You mentioned that as your family got larger, your ability to really spend time with the blog got smaller. I mean, for those who haven't done a, a blog or a successful blog over a length of time, how much time are we really talking about here that's necessary? 
Well, I write really fast, but I spend anywhere from 10 to 20 hours a week writing on the blog. And that includes, you know, not just times tapping away at the keyboard, but, you know, researching and making sure I've got my facts straight and processing the photos from my recent press trip someplace and all that stuff. But yeah, it's it's 20 hours a week on top of a 60-hour-a-week job and, you know, a kindergartner and a family and everything. So it's a, it's definitely, it's a major time commitment. As the blogging wine world has gotten bigger and bigger, has it also gotten a, a bit smaller and smaller as people are kind of like, yeah, I'm going to do this for two years. And then, you know, I'm not, I'm not picking it up anymore. Like I, you know, I see a lot of like, they don't actually look like the last post, but they haven't been updated for a year kind of blogs, especially around wine. Maybe that's because more what I follow, but it seems like people do it for a while. Often like two years seems like kind of a, a crucial cutoff or not. Yeah. Well, there's the several thresholds. There's the two month threshold, right? So that, you know, like 95% of the blogs that are started never make it past two or three months. And incidentally, I have this rule for being added to my list of wine blogs that you have to have been around for several months and posting regularly because otherwise my list would be full of, you know, websites that aren't updated anymore. Um, however, that you know, past that, there is definitely a great degree of attrition, and it's interesting you say the two-year mark. I think I haven't really thought of it, but I think that's that's probably true. Um, yeah, I, it's a thankless pursuit, right? I mean, nobody's making any money at it. Not even me. I mean, I'm making a, a little bit, but you know, as one of the most popular wine blogs, like I couldn't possibly make a living doing that. Uh, so. You know, it's like writing in your diary. <laughs> Nobody pays you to do it. Nobody tells you to do it. You just have to do it of your own volition and enjoy it. And how long can you keep that up before you find something more interesting to do with your time, whether it's mountain biking or going out and actually drinking wine with your friends or whatever? So I think there's a huge attrition. Um, having said that, you know, there are probably hundreds of wine blogs started every day. And so for every person that's gotten bored with it after 18 months, there's a brand new person, you know, who's you know, it's all shiny and new and they're very excited. Um, and some of those people will doubtless, you know, have staying power as, as you know, some of them have clearly pro proven to, to do. David White, a terrorist, sort of just sort of came out of nowhere. It's like, oh, who's this guy? Um, and he's, he's doing a great job and seems like he's in it for the long haul. Are there characteristics about bloggers uh, or how they write or how they approach the subject that you've noticed, hey, these are people that tend to be in it for the long term versus people who try it for a little bit, dabble, and then disappear? Well, you can definitely tell the difference between somebody who takes it seriously or not, um, both in terms of their diligence at posting regularly, but also just the degree to which their prose is crafted there are plenty of wine blogs out there, you know, that are the equivalent of, hey, yeah, last night, me and my friends went to this cool bar, and these are the three bottles we opened. And, oh, man, this second one was sick. Oh, that's great, you know. And then the next day, we did it again. Uh, there are plenty of those out there, and, and um, it's blogs like that that the mainstream media seem to continue to enjoy sort of saying, oh, look, wine blogs, they're such crap, uh, and, and sort of poking at, poking at us in that way uh, uh, over things like that. But... There are definitely people you read and you're like, wow, this is this could have been an article in Decanter or any of these, you know, wine magazines. Um, and uh, look, yeah, they're writing regularly. And so those are definitely characteristics that you can see, you know, people are, are taking it seriously and they're trying to make an effort. And some of those people, it seems like, are really trying to become destinations and gather traffic and things like that. And then there's this other class of people, which I, I also greatly appreciate because I think there's real value in it 
you know, for them and for the industry in general, where they're clearly just practicing. But they're, you know, it's like they're working on their 10,000 hours of wine writing and they're just like, all right, I'm going to write about wine. I'm going to do this. And, you know, maybe they're early on in their careers and they want to be wine writers. And so they're, they're building up that, that portfolio, which I think is a, you know, a really valuable use of a wine blog. And, you know, we've seen fabulous writers come out of that. Um, uh, a local here, Talia Bayaki, if I'm pronouncing her last name right, um, sort of arose that way, you know, just sort of, you know, started off writing her own thing and then poof, like you know, she's in writing for the spectator and now the co-editor of this new magazine. And, um, uh, you know, there are a number of people like that. Do you find that sometimes they get gigs in wine writing that then take them away from the blog? They start out doing the blog, and then they become successful at it. And then someone's like, hey, we actually want to pay you to do something similar for us. Yeah, and more power to them. I mean, in some ways, that's the point, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> Write for free as long as you have to to get the paid gig. And then, yeah, go do the paid gig. Um, so, yeah, you see that. You see, uh, you know, there are definitely people who who do that and and have sort of moved on to, um, you know, to to write paid gigs elsewhere. I mean, I'm I'm certainly a little bit of that, right? I mean, I, I write a column for Jancis every month and I've written stuff for elsewhere. And when I am doing that, I'm generally that's at the expense of my blog, um, which has contributed to the um, to the slight drop in frequency in terms of when I'm writing. Um, but then there are other people who come the opposite way, right? So there are traditional wine writers that have had wine writing gigs for years, and then, oops, it goes away. And Michael Steinberger is a great example, right? I mean, I always loved reading his stuff in Slate, but one day the Slate gig dried up, and all of a sudden now we get Michael blogging, which is fabulous. And he's a great writer and, and really enjoy reading his stuff. So, yeah, it goes, it goes both ways. You mentioned a project with Jancis. What's that been like? It's been a lot of fun. I mean, first of all, it's great to get paid to write about wine. Uh, no matter what. Uh, and for me, it's writing for a totally different audience than I normally write for. It's very clearly a skews European, in particular British, uh, and they don't know a lot about American wine. Uh, and so I have to consciously write with that in mind. Um, and then there's also just a, you know, a different voice and tone in the British press. And I, I don't try and, you know, dramatically alter the way I, the way I write, but you know, whereas I might not use a sophisticated word typically in my blog, I'd have less hesitance about doing that in uh, in my columns for Jancis, which isn't to say that I dumb down what I write on pornography at all. Um, but, you know, there's a, you know, I remember my days at Oxford and there's just a certain level of uh, intellectualism in how writing happens in, in England in particular. And I, I try and harmonize with that as best I can, uh, imitate it, whatever. I don't know what the right word is, but I definitely, I write a little bit differently for her and that's fun. It's a, it's a different exercise. Is that part of the reason that one might take on different gigs is to kind of explore different aspects of their voice? Certainly. Um, you know, when you're early in your career, you can't afford to not take on anything, right? So, you know, somebody asks you to write an advertorial for something or other. Yeah, you go do it just because it pays money and, and you can do it. But I think um, for me anyway, you know, it's probably best for me to answer in my own experience that's great. I really enjoy the exercise of, you know, when I'm writing for Fine Cooking Magazine, it's like, all right, who are your readers and what do they know? And what's the overall tone of the magazine? Like, are you elevating wine, you know, to the, sort of its highest intellectual apogee, you know, which is what writing in the world of fine wine is all about, right? I wrote this piece recently and it was sort of like, 
mean, it was freaking a piece of scholarship, right? It was like digging up every cultural and historical thing about Wiener Gemischersatz that I could find, right? And so that was sort of like, you know, college term paper writing in the wine world. And then for fine cooking, it's like, you know, somewhere between, you know, Martha Stewart and uh, um, I don't even know what the, the equivalent, you know, it's a savoury level kind of writing. You know, people who are really into food maybe don't know so much about wine, so that's its own thing, and the writing for chances is its own thing. And so there's definitely, it's like listening to different kinds of music, right? There's definitely a, a pleasure in, in, in placing yourself in those voices and in those situations and writing to achieve a particular goal and fit in with a, a particular sort of thruster or focus of, a, of an outlet. Have you had people follow along with your work in different avenues who may not know you personally and then and say, introduce themselves years later, either by email or in person? And if so, how does that go? Do they treat you like a friend or like someone they know well because they've been reading you all this time? Or are they... You know, they say, you were wrong in 1995 when you said, I mean, or, you know, 2005 when you said that the thing was the thing. And, you know, I mean, how does it come, how, how does the feedback get generated and what does this seem like? Um, well, so it ranges all over the place. Um, you know, I have my detractors, certainly, um, people who have, uh, I'll use a technical word, become trolls, you know, that's sort of. Yeah, people who hang out and their job, it seems to be, is to give you shit on your website. Because I think so. it'd be awesome if you had a list of like trolls in Slovak, <laughs> trolls in Russian. Exactly. I'm just kidding. Man. Internet trolls I have known. <laughs> um, uh, so there are certainly those people um, who don't care for, for what I do and how I do it. Um, then, but that they're relatively few and far between. Um, then there are people, yeah, who after reading me for several months, you know, uh, send me an email and you're like, and they say, you don't know me. I've been reading your stuff. It's really cool. You want to come over to my house for dinner? <laughs> and I actually have a very, very close friend who, you know, I met exactly that way. And I, with that guy, I was like, well... Maybe let's meet at a wine tasting first in a yeah, large with, open public space. With other people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I met him and his wife and they seemed super nice. And so yeah, now now we're we're the closest of friends. Um I definitely have people who come up to me though and are like, Oh, you're older. God, that's great. I've been reading the blog, you know, and that's I mean, it's a great ego boost. I mean, to have people be fans and to really appreciate what you do. And I get emails now and then of people who are just like, Oh, you know, I tried this wine you recommended the other day, and it was the best Syrah I had ever had. You know, thank you so much, or whatever. Um, so that's great. Uh, you know, I get winemakers calling me up or emailing me and saying, oh, you know, that was such a great profile. Thank you. You know, I think we sold like seven or eight cases in the following weeks after you wrote that article or whatever. It's hugely appreciated, whatever. Um so yeah, I get I get different different sorts of things. Um, you know, I don't have any sort of screaming fangirls like nobody. You know, the, the people don't give it time, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> nobody asks for my autograph, but um, yeah, there are a lot of people who. I are think we should of, get you booked at Shea. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, uh, Yellow brick wine with Alder Yar. Excellent, I love it. Uh, yeah, sign me up. You can take ten percent of my earnings. Um, so, but it's great. I mean, that's one of the best aspects of what I do is just having people say, because of you, I tried this wine. Because of you, I explored something that I never explored before. You know, because of you, I'm drinking better and spending more money on wine. That one always makes me happy. Uh, so I get a lot of different different kinds of feedback. So you mentioned people like Kermit Lynch and Gerald Asher and the way that they wrote. Do we find today um, more of a desire to document our own experience? If we 
do something we enjoy a bottle of wine has it become more important as a culture not just alder but everybody to say hey this is what uh, this is what happened this i'm going to document it somehow either with a picture or a note or a blog post i mean is that a cultural phenomenon and why might it be well the numbers from instagram and photo bucket and flickr and twitter demonstrate that absolutely yes that is so i mean the number of photos taken every day now and posted to the internet i think i heard some statistic exceeds the total number of photos taken by the world between you know 1849 when photography was invented and the second world war right and that's every day that's getting posted to the internet um so there's this incredible technology now that allows us to do that documentation and um, I don't know if you've ever read the book On Photography by Susan Sontag, which is a seminal piece of scholarship and an amazing work. Um, and she delves into a lot of the psychological, cultural, even biological sort of like evolutionarily uh, focused reasons why photography is so important and embedded in our culture is this idea of validating our own experiences through through documentation, through photography, which is the first medium that really exhibits proof in a way. Oh, I went there. Look, here's me at Disneyland. Oh, I was at the French Laundry. Look, here's what I ate. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a validation and it's sort of like <clears throat> reinforcing our own experiences, I think, but also a celebration as well. It's a way of pointing and saying, hey, that's cool or that's interesting and and sharing an opinion in a way that I think – is easier than writing, you know, these days is sort of the, the Facebook trail, the, the Instagram, you know, feed. Uh, it's a way of sharing little aspects of ourselves with other people. And as a, as a consumer of that myself, I think it's really wonderful. I now know much more about what's going on in my friends' lives than I ever would have before these technologies existed. And, uh, and there's something really magical about that. It does come with all sorts of drawbacks and can we get overloaded and can it insert a barrier between us and real experience and like you know yeah i mean anybody who's sat next to an obsessive food photographer with flashes going off in a restaurant and you know watching them sort of log everything in their ipod and and take photographs of their food and not have conversation with their friends that they're sitting at the table with can understand how that sort of becomes this this device this shield in a way between us and 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 reality but uh I think there's value in it nonetheless. You mentioned that you were collaborating with a photographer on a book. What's that about and how did that get started? Um, so I have long had this interest in the individual aromas and flavors and what I call the essences of wine. Uh, for me, early on in my explorations as a wine lover, and frankly still today, the most magical thing about wine to me was that, you know, you got grapes, you got sunlight, you got oxygen, you got a little wood sometimes, and you get something that can taste like red currants or chocolate or lychee, you know, and that's amazing. That's as, I mean, as close to magic as I know what there is in the world. And that's always been a touchstone for me of wine appreciation is, is the identification and appreciation of these flavors. Um, 
you know, I'm one of the guys who like sees gooseberries at the local market. I'm like, oh, gooseberries. Wait, let me remind myself what they taste like, you know, um, uh, and things like that. And so that's that's definitely part of the way that I relate to wine is that sort of sensory exploration. And so I had this idea for many years of sort of capturing those individual essences of wine and then writing about them. Um, and I knew I wasn't a good enough photographer to do that. And so I had been searching around, searching around, searching around to find a photographer. And through connections, I met this woman, Lee Beisch, who's a world-class food photographer. She's done work for, you know, Williams-Sonoma and Savure and all these cookbooks. And we got introduced through a mutual friend. And I, I just happened to mention as we were, you know, getting introduced, oh, I've always had this idea of doing this thing and writing this stuff and having the photographs. And she's like that sounds fabulous. Let's do it. Um, and so, so the project, you know, was first on the blog. So we, I created this list of essences, you know, you look at any aroma wheel and you've got your, your list of, of flavors and aromas. And then we just started shooting them. Right. And I, she has a stylist and we sort of, I would tell her sort of what the material was that I wanted her to focus on. I mean, some of it's obvious cherries or cherries. Right. Um, and she and her stylist would set up different shots and they'd shoot them and we'd talk through them and I'd choose an image and then I'd put it up on the blog and then write, to call them prose poems, maybe giving them too much credit, but, you know, a little poetical kind of essay about that aroma or flavor and then recommend specific wines in which somebody could find that, that flavor or aroma from my, from my point of view. And... We've been doing that, you know, irregularly, but weekly or biweekly for over a year now. And so I've got this body of these images and I dream of it being a beautiful coffee table book. So um, I sent out my book proposal to all the people who would publish it and they all said, no, we don't think we can sell it. So now I'm sort of going down the road of self-publishing and, and putting that together just to just to see what happens. Does self-publishing seem almost kind of like the early days of blogging where it's like, hey, this is a new thing that we could do and it might actually be successful? Yeah, except that was like seven years ago and now it's like totally mainstream, totally easy to do. And, you know, essentially what's happening to the publishing industry is what's happened to the music industry over the last, you know, 20 years is artists are saying, let's see. So you're not going to help promote my book. You're not going to, you know, do any of these things. I might have to pay for my own designer. So the reason that I should use you, Mr. Big Publisher, to publish this thing is what? Oh, because you have some distribution relationships with these companies, you know, but, um, you know, the value add that the publishing industry has brought to an individual um, author has dropped dramatically over time as the publishing industry has consolidated and as they are more cha more and more challenged to make a decent uh, uh, to, to make it a decent living and so now everybody's self-publishing I mean it's really the quality of the books that you can get uh, and the tools that are available for doing that are fabulous and you know why wouldn't you want to make five dollars a book instead of 50 cents so there's, in some ways, there's no reason not to do it. Uh, you know, the reason that I went out to publishers in the first place is because this book really needs to be printed at a very high level of quality. And there's a, that level of quality is very expensive. And so a big publishing house would take that on and take those costs on if they believed in the book. And so, so that's the reason I went that route to begin with. But since I said no, well, we'll see. I'll do Kickstarter or something like that. 
you contributed to another book that is being published called Opus Vino. And what, oh, yes. What yeah. did you do there? Reinforce Your Bookshelves, the nine-pound behemoth um, from DK Publishing. So this is a uh, – think of the World Atlas of Wine, but with wine recommendations in it, right? So it covers all the major wine regions of the world and all the major producers in each of those regions. It's this huge, thick, black – monstrous book. Um, and the editor, Jim Gordon, uh, hired me to write the Sonoma and Marin County chapters of California. So, you know, I wrote a little intro for about the region and what it's like, and then did profiles of what I considered to be all the major wineries in, in those counties. What's going to be the next medium that people might partake of to talk about wine? We saw people migrate to Facebook. We saw people migrate to Twitter. We saw people migrate to Instagram and maybe Delectable. Uh, you know, what are what's the next technology tool that might happen that might allow people to have another sort of conversation about wine that you suspect might be relevant? That's a good question. If I felt strongly about an answer to this, I'd probably go off and make a million dollars doing it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's definitely that sort of prognostication kind of question, I think, that you're asking. Um, I think what I can say with confidence is that there is definitely a trend to diversification. I mean, that's what we've seen over the last 10 years, and it's just continuing. There are more, more outlets out there than ever before for exercising your wine appreciation, whether that be in a social way through conversations, the things like Delectable that you mentioned, which is sort of a great, great app and, and sort of burgeoning social network of wine geeks and wine lovers, um, to just different outlets for the expression of wine commentary and criticism. There's an e-publication called Loam Baby. I don't know if you've seen that. A guy out of California is publishing that. And it's a it's its own little wine magazine. Um, and you know, I don't know if the guy's making any money. He probably isn't. And who knows how long he'll keep it up. But it's interesting. It's a unique and distinct voice. Um, and uh, And so things like that are popping up everywhere. And I think more so than, than anything else, we can be sure that that diversity will continue for sure. I think one of the things to look for, too, potentially is some level of consolidation, even though despite diversification, which I think will continue, um, one of the things that's becoming true is that the eyeballs that used to go to a few destinations in the world of food and wine um, are now scattered everywhere. And in order for the big destinations to remain relevant, they're going to have to reconsolidate those eyeballs, which will mean buying up either the people behind some of these outlets or the outlets themselves to try and consolidate some of those eyeballs back to the place that they can actually earn advertising revenues for, for publications that make their living that way. And so, you know, I think, I think you'll see, you know, we've certainly seen it with Parker, you know, sort of buying up, uh, you know, the Roan, Jeb Dunnick's Roan Report and Neil Martin and all these people and sort of, you know, uh, you know, bringing those folks into his fold to, to bolster, uh, you know, his staff and his capabilities. Um, and I think you'll probably see it with, with certain outlets as well. You know, at some point, somebody will come along and want to, you know, buy venography from me to, to get access to my viewers. And, I don't know. I probably have a price. I don't know what that is, but um, uh, so I think we'll see some of that as well. I don't know if I've fully answered your question. But. No, that makes sense to me. Are there limits to the blog form that you uh, have found frustrating over time? Where you're like, you know, uh, there's this one aspect that we don't really reach in in this format. I'm sure there's a whole segment of the population that 
Yeah, that the blog doesn't reach. And I think, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk tapped into a whole very rich vein of those kinds of people when he started doing his wine library TV. People who were, if not fed up with, then certainly disdainful of the um, the reverence of the wine culture that we have in the United States and its uh, its insistence on seeming insistence on, you know, education being the key to under, you know, to appreciating wine that you have to know something about it in order to like it. Um, and I think he, he reached a whole segment of people who were like, yeah, this is like an everyday guy. He's got his jet spit bucket, right? And he's talking about wine and words that I can understand. And he says, sniffy sniff, you know, to make it clear that he's not a snob. And, um, and so I definitely think that there's, that's a very rich audience. And I think they're out there and, um, and yeah, that that sort of most blogs don't don't reach them. Um, you have somebody like uh, Joe Roberts at One Wine Dude, who definitely takes a much more casual, much more you know, hey bro, you know, approach to to wine. And I think his readership you know swelled because of that. And I think he's he's got a very dedicated set of readers that appreciate that kind of voice and, and that point of view on the world of wine. Um, but yeah, there's a whole segment of people who would be interested in wine stuff, but probably only want to watch it on television or things like that, that blogs and magazines and everything else that's going on aren't reaching. Um, unfortunately, that segment I don't think is big enough to justify or to motivate, and maybe is a better word, you know, the Food Network and people like that to do wine shows. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a very small community. I have one of the most highest trafficked wine blogs in the world, and I can't make a living on advertising. You know, you look at the highest trafficked food blogs in the world, and they're like quitting their jobs and buying second homes. I mean, it's a, it's a, at least an order of magnitude different. And in one way, to talk about wine without implying that you need to know a lot about it and in a more casual kind of bro uh, atmosphere, isn't that essentially beer culture? Like, isn't that essentially how people talk about beer? Yeah, and it's interesting because I think beer has migrated the other way, right? Now we have this very intellectual beer culture, which is sort of like about the science of home brewing and all of this stuff. But even despite that, there's definitely, and I think this goes to the deepest, earliest cultural trappings and tendencies of our country, where beer has always been the every man's drink, and there's it's going to take a lot to remove it from that. And I don't think, frankly, it'll ever happen. You know, beer was the working man's, you know, uh, soporific or, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, since the earliest days of the country, whereas wine was this vaunted thing that was available to the founding fathers and a few people below them. Um, and so that's the baggage that's attached to both of those those drinks in our culture and People relate to them very differently as a result. One thing that I've seen happen with the blog world is that they'll be like topic of the week. Everyone kind of weighs in on a thing. Recently, we saw uh, some, you know, some kind of shocking comments happen from a winemaker in in northern Italy, uh, Mr. Brezon. And when something like that happens, it, there feels to be like a need where numerous bloggers weigh in on a on a topic. You know, you weighed in on the, on the Brezon thing. Is that and and I thought very smartly and and sensitively. Um, but is that uh, a need that we have to kind of uh, reply to something that sort of affects us all, or is it something that like, hey, you know, we're each going to put on some thought, some thinking caps about this, and maybe we'll come up with a group collaboration? Because it seems like you know, a guy in Maryland will talk about it, a guy in California will talk about it, a guy in Canada will talk about it. And it becomes like you almost can't 
escape the topic of the week sometimes. Right. You know, it's like, oh, well, I, I want to check out my wine blog. Oh, well, oh, oh, there's also reportage of of this thing that this guy in, you know, in northern Italy said, like, you know, what's going on in Australia this week? I don't know, because everyone wants to talk about, you know, what this, you know what I mean? Yeah, but that's the nature of news, isn't it? Right? I mean, it's... Uh, Something happens, you know, in the world and every news outlet in the country covers it. And it's, this is the same phenomenon, right? To the extent that people like myself have held ourselves up as commentators on the world of wine. When something happens in the world of wine, we tend to write about it. Um, uh, and, you know, you get the same sort of news cycle, if you will, that you get in the traditional media. Um, you know, the Casey Anderson thing, you know, that pops up. It's sort of like, it's the story of the week and everybody's talking about it and every channel you turn to is talking about it and then, you know, it dies away and on to the next thing. So I think that's that's just a factor of our sort of information consumption culture that I don't think we can get around. Um, you know, the clear, there are clearly people who decided not to comment on that very quite deliberately. But um, I don't know how we could avoid that. Um, Does it sometimes move into a world where, to give the news analogy, CNN is commenting on Fox's coverage? Like, oh, you know, sure. one blogger is like, well, as this blogger wrote, and it gets away from what the dude, you know, what actually happened in the place in northern Italy. Like, it becomes like a, you know, I don't want to say a circle of <laughs> the game writers of, game of telephone, right? each other, but there tends to be a referential to other bloggers. As yes. opposed to an event sometimes by the time it gets down the line. We are a navel-gazing community in that way. And there's there's no way of getting around that. I try and avoid that as much as possible. I'm quite self-conscious of that and how, you know, that's not particularly of interest to most people, I think. And I mean, let's be honest, wine blogging isn't of interest to most people. Uh, your average wine lover doesn't read wine blogs. Um, but there's definitely sort of this community feedback thing that happens, which at times can be a really wonderful thing, right? Because it can be a conversation and a very dynamic and diverse conversation at that. And I think there's value in that uh, when the subject of conversation is very interesting. Uh, it can also be gossipy and, and, and snarky and petty and, you know, caught up in stuff that nobody cares about. You know, every once in a while there's an ethical kerfuffle you know, in the wine world, uh, you know, Tyler Coleman takes a swipe at Robert Parker for yet another thing, you know, that he deems a transgression of ethics. And then, every, you know, then people write about that. I mean, I think largely people have started to ignore those kinds of posts by Tyler since he seems to do them often. But well, he's not the only one. I mean, there yes. was the whole Natalie <clears throat> McLean thing. And, you oh, know, yes, that's a great example. Different suckling had a thing. and That's a great you know, example. Where yeah. people attacked these figures for yep. ethical reasons. And they came from different venues than just one guy. I mean, it was, yep. you know what I mean? Absolutely. No, you're, you're quite correct to point that out. And But, yeah, the Nat Natalie McLean thing is a perfect example. Sort of that, that only mattered <laughs> to the people who are really writing about it. But it seemed to matter quite a bit. And it's almost like they burn her in effigy. Like, I mean, yeah, she really got... That, yeah, it was really, yeah. it was really unfortunate. Like I think she was clearly in the wrong and and made some mistakes and was unfortunately made poor choices in the how she dealt with how acknowledgement with of those mistakes. But yeah, some people, you know, really went after her. And um, you know, I, I, it is absolutely not my place to say that she had it coming. But like clearly, there were sentiments out there already about her as a person or as a personality or as an outlet that. 
there were strong feelings attached to, and this was sort of the, you know, somebody lit a match and the whole thing went up. Um, is that how the blogging world is kind of like self-policing? Like, is that how, because, okay, you know, one of the problems that people point out is, well, you know, ethics can get a little gray. There can be a paid trip. There can be a thing. I mean, if one blogger is ready to pounce on another for an ethical transgression, is that how it, it kind of polices to the point where, you know, the voices that carry on and carry through and are respected are, are people that, you know, it's agreed by the community seems to be doing good work. You know, that's that's sort of a deep question. I think there are different ways to answer it. On the one hand, um, what you describe is the phenomenon that causes anybody who's putting their voice out there and writing or making a statement or communicating gets filtered by the audience as a whole. Right? I mean, people vote with their eyeballs and their feet. They pay attention to, listen to, and patronize the thoughts and commentary of people who they think are good, right? I mean, uh, cream rises to the top is the analogy, right? So um, the wine blogging world is very hyper-conscious of the ethics involved in writing about wine for two reasons, I think. One, because, well, it's this sort of dichotomy. On the one hand, one of the main reasons that, main publicly stated reasons traditional journalists gave to discount wine blogs and to pay no attention to them was aspersions about the ethical ambiguity of the people writing. On the other hand, a lot of wine bloggers look at the traditional realm of journalism and say, hey, look, one of the reasons I started writing about wine and the reason that I read wine blogs is so that I don't have to sit there and wonder if the review for this wine that's right next to the full-page advertisement for the same wine has anything to do with each other. Um, and historically, there has been, with the exception of the New York Times, which has an ironclad, very well-stated policy about its ethics, there has been almost zero disclosure and continues to be in the traditional wine world about the relationship between commercial interests of the publication and what happens behind the scenes. Uh, of course, Parker is another exception to that, you know, very clear, strong ethical stand. And the stand that he was taking when he started The Wine Advocate uh, is against the same sort of thing that a lot of bloggers, you know, brought, you know. Um, and I think in some ways bloggers don't give Parker enough credit for that sort of inspiration uh, in terms of being independent voices that that, that he that he was. But I think he really was. He certainly was to me. I'm, I'm quite, quite open about that. But... Um, so I think there's just a, a high degree of consciousness about this idea of ethics, and I think that drives people to comment in particular on ethical transgressions that they see both within our community and uh, in the traditional media, because there's just this oversensitivity about, about all of it. Um, and I think all of it, of course, is exacerbated just by the communications technologies that we have today, right? Facebook and, all the, and Twitter and all this stuff, and blogs as well. Uh, make it very easy to comment about everything. And so people do. Are there situations you have in the everyday world where you feel like, well, you know me because I interact with you at the post office or at the coffee shop or, you know, uh, 
doing this activity maybe at work, but you don't really know me because you don't know me on the virtual side of you. You've never read my wine blog, so you don't know this whole faucet of me. I mean, do you ever have that kind of feeling with somebody? It's like, yeah, we, we're friends at work. I mean, I say hi or something, but they'll never really know me because they don't follow me online. I don't take what I do that seriously in the sense that, I mean, it's a very important thing to me personally. Um, and I think I shared this with you the other day as we were talking, but for me, writing about wine is like knitting. It's something that I do that's intensely personal. I do it on my own time. For me, it's a way of decompressing. It's, a, it's an aesthetic pursuit. Um, and it's an important part of who I am, but not in a way that really matters in how I relate to other people. And so certainly if I became deep friends with someone or was in a relationship with somebody, that would be a part of me that it would be important for them to know and to appreciate and to share in, right? I mean, I, I love sharing my wine with friends. But on a more casual level and a more informal level, like I, I have no need to when I'm you know, sitting at a bar with a bunch of strangers and having to strike up conversation, have that enter into the picture, um, you know, who I am is much deeper and, and different than the fact that I happen to write about wine. So maybe it goes the other way, like someone who reads you on the blog maybe really doesn't know you unless they've hung out with you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, getting back to my trolls and my detractors, I mean, there are people who either mock the kinds of things that I do or disagree with what I say, who clearly have invented some picture of me as a person that it, like bears no resemblance to reality. <laughs> so what's next for the person that is you? I mean, what's next for Aldo Yarrow? What do you anticipate happening over the next few years? I will continue to balance, to try and balance the things that I have to do to make a living and support my family and this very valuable and important personal part of my life, which is writing about wine. And that's a, it's a dance. It's a struggle. There are probably a lot of metaphors I can use to describe it. Um, and I see that continuing. Um, I, uh, this book is sort of this new adventure that I'm on, um, and we'll see where that takes me. Um, there are potentially some other book projects that might come out, um, that, that would be fun avenues for pursuing my passion. Um, but beyond that, I, I think it will probably continue much as it, much as it has for the last 10 years, which is just uh, a way for me to you know, instead of watching TV, do something interesting and productive and create, you know, something that passes for art in my life and, um, and use it as a way of framing and celebrating one of the things I'm most passionate about. You know, so one of the things that William Gibson wrote about uh, sometimes was that kind of ghost in the machine idea of, uh, of a body of work or a personality that, that stays in the matrix of, of the Internet after that person may have actually physically died. I mean, do you uh, anticipate as the generations pass, as people start up wine blogs and then uh, become physically unable to keep them up, either through injury or death or just old age, uh, what happens to that blog? I mean, does it continue on after them? Does does it get taken down? I mean, how are we going to interact with people who are long since passed in a kind of cultural archaeology? Totally fascinating and interesting question. And the first thing that I think about is is uh, you know Joe Dresner, and I don't actually know what has happened to his blog. Uh, it would be very interesting to find out. 
there's definitely a fleeting nature, especially to, to blogging, but I think to any sort of serial publication, right? I mean, columns in a newspaper or whatever, right? I mean, you know, after about a week, they exist only on microfilm someplace, you know, in the libraries that we used to go to and, and, and look them up. Um, of course, there are digital archives now, but, you know, they, they very much pass from, from, you know, common and public view. I'd be lying if I didn't say I wondered, you know, what, you know, everybody has an occasional flash of like, oh, shit, what if I was, you know, hit by a car? What would happen to my family or whatever? And included in that sort of brief you know, fantasy or nightmare or whatever you want to call it, I wonder, oh, yeah, what would happen to the what happened to the blog? You know, would, would it just sit there? Um, certainly, you know, money has to be paid to the hosting companies to keep the website sitting there. Um, are we going to see tomb robbers like breaking passcodes and posting new things uh, <laughs> later? And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, some of my friends uh, who have passed away, their Facebook pages are still up. And every year on their birthday, we go in and tell them how much we've missed them and things like that. And I think uh, I think things like that will, will probably continue to exist. And who knows? Maybe there's going to be a whole industry of sort of, you know, deliberate you know, archiving and curation of these bodies of work that have been created. And um, so, yeah, but but also I think, you know, the phenomenon of, you know, a Jay McInerney just came out with a great new collection of his essays for the Wall Street Journal and other places like that. You know, there's that, there's that collection mechanism of a book and a sort of a different vehicle for that content that already exists out there in the world. And I think something like that will will, will undoubtedly exist for, uh, for this kind of online content, but not for all of it, not even for a tiny slice of it. So there's this, there is this, I mean, already there's this incredible body of content that's out there on the web that, you know, maybe just in the halls of Google, uh, you know, is the only place it exists and matters, you know, and they're archiving everything and keeping track of everything so that when we're looking for stuff, we can find it. But, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting sort of existential, question of like what you know let's say i keep this up for another 10 20 30 years online what's gonna happen to all that stuff i don't know yeah i keep waiting for religious uh answers on this like i i, I i'm waiting for the blog format to have when you have a post to have it say save erase cremate you know <laughs> and based based upon your religious preference that you that you put into the thing there you go you know? there you go or maybe i just leave a little note like on like i go back to the first blog post i ever wrote and i say p.s when i'm dead and gone yeah <laughs> you know control alt delete or whatever or we'll leave these posts for science <laughs> <laughs> you know and the others the others uh, I'm afraid they're going with me. But. Exactly. Feel free to use all of these words under different contexts, remix as necessary. But let me ask you another question. Okay, so recently, uh, because of government leaks, uh, we found out that the, there was a, a very broad swath of government surveillance that was happening online. And it, uh, I don't know how you felt, and I guess that's really my question, but one of the ways I felt was, boy, that whole sense of the innocence of you can go to the net and be a different person and not be held accountable in the same way that you'd be held accountable on the street if you said something to somebody in person. That whole sense that it was a secret, that whole sense of that personal diary approach seemed less uh, real suddenly because it felt like all these things were being 
searched and collected in a way that I, I hadn't necessarily signed up for. Has that changed the tenor of online conversation for you? Not really. I know enough about the way the internet works and is constructed, and I know enough about security and hacking and stuff like that to know that all of that privacy and security has been an illusion since day one. Uh, it's been something that we've created in our minds, which is a psychological safety about these things. But in reality, anybody who uses Facebook and Foursquare and Instagram and Twitter and all these things is leaving an encyclopedia of who they are, what they do, what they say, what they think on the internet. Um, and that's just the nature of that, of the medium. And I had friends in college who spent their summers working for the NSA. And even back then in the late nineties, they were, you know, mining all sorts of data about what was going on on the internet. Um, and so that's just something because of my exposure and involvement in the internet technology industry, I know. Um, the question is, you know, Despite that, you know, is the government right to be doing this and what should they be doing with that information which they can gather and, and you know, should they be mining this information to begin with? Um, you know, and I, I, let's, let's keep the political discussions out of this conversation, but um, the, the ability to do that has always been there and it's not just the government who can do that. Um, and the businesses all over the world are having a field day mining all sorts of information like this about us all day long. And, and for those inclined to paranoia, there's good reason to, to be paranoid. Um, and, but you know, the, I've met some really high level hackers, you know, people that, you know, have news stories written about them and do amazing things. And, and basically they say, look, if you want privacy, don't ever send any email, don't ever use the web, and basically live your life in analog. And that's the only way to keep that information safe. Aldo Yarrow, thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. It was a great pleasure. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.